you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. I want to look at uh, verses 29 through 34. Jesus heals two blind men. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as uh, we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for us as your people. So we commit our study to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we note, uh, as we see the outline here, the theme is Christ the King, and we are finishing out that section in chapter 17 through 20, the instructions of the King. In the first 10 chapters of Matthew, we have various lines of evidence put forth showing that Jesus is indeed the, the bona fide Messiah of Israel. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we have the rejection of the King as seen in Israel's representative spiritual leaders, claiming that Jesus did miracles by the power of Satan. Well, this marked a definitive turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ, in which a form of judicial judgment was then applied as he began to speak to them in parables, as seen in Matthew 13. And the key point made in these parables was that the kingdom previously offered to Israel as being at hand was now being put on hold. The kingdom program was now being delayed. No longer is the kingdom presented as being at hand. Then in the section on the revelations of the king in chapters 14 through 16, we have the climactic issue of Jesus' ministry to Israel being brought out, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And this was the ultimate issue in Christ's ministry before Israel. In rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, in what way did they reject him? Do you ever think about that? In what way, what was the essence of their rejection? Did they reject him as their Savior, who came to die on the cross for their sins? Well, no, this was not the issue yet at this point before the cross. He hadn't died for their sins. Rather, they rejected him as Messiah God. This was the basis of their rejection. As Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, 24, If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's the issue. In Luke 19, Jesus told the parable of the ten minus. And he made the point that it was about his enemies who did not want him to reign over them. Jesus presented himself as Messiah God, as Lord, and Israel rejected these lordship claims. This was their great sin in rejecting Jesus. As they told Pilate in John 19:7, quote, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself to be the son of God. They understood his claims of deity. They just refused to accept it. And in this, they rejected Jesus. He came into his own and his own rejected him. Well, in contrast, Peter in his great confession said to Jesus, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus in turn said he would build his church on this truth. Then in chapter 17 through 20, we have the instructions of the king. As he was preparing his disciples for a post-cross reality. 
His ministry more and more was focused on private instruction and less and less on public discourse. And more and more the emphasis was now on the cross and the resurrection that would follow. Last time we left off with Jesus emphasizing that he as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And today we conclude this section on the instructions of the king in chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, with Jesus demonstrating his mission of service in healing these two blind men. Now the connection is this. The apostles were thinking about who will have the best positions in the kingdom. But Jesus emphasized serving and that those who will be great in the kingdom are the servants in the here and now. And those who will be first in the kingdom will be those who serve as a slave in the here and now. What a contrast. Instead of self-promotion, Jesus, by example, heals these two blind outcasts on his way to the cross. What a lesson. Now, the parallel passages to Matthew 20, 29-34 are found in Mark 10, 46-52 and Luke 18, 35-43. This story links to the emphasis on Jesus serving, as just mentioned in verse 28, and then forms a bridge to the emphasis on who Jesus was as the son of David, which culminates in the triumphal entry, which follows. Up until the very end, Jesus is serving and thereby providing a clear witness to who he truly is as Israel's Messiah. And in doing so, provides a clear example for those who follow after him. <clears throat> Let's pick it up, Matthew 20, verse 29. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Jericho was about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, meaning it was about a day's journey from Jerusalem. Normally, go about 15 miles in a day in, in, in those days where you didn't have cars or whatever. Uh, so the destination of Jerusalem where Jesus would be crucified, is not far off now. He's headed up towards Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified. He's about a day's journey out. Put it on the map here. Uh, here we are. He's coming at Jericho, and Jerusalem is about a day's journey away, about 15 miles away. Now, in considering the parallel accounts here, some have accused the Bible at this point of contradicting itself. Because, you see, Matthew and Mark have Jesus coming out of Jericho, while Luke has him coming near to Jericho. However, there are several plausible explanations. The most common explanation is that there were, in fact, two Jerichos during the time of Jesus. There was the old city of Jericho, in distinction to a new Jericho built about a mile away. So depending on which Jericho you are referencing, uh, you could say Jesus was leaving Jericho, or you could say he was entering Jericho. And both would be right, depending on your frame of reference. Now, there are various examples of cities in the Bible that have both an old part and a new part. One example would be the old city of Joppa, also called Jaffa. Uh, the old city is still there today. But in addition, there is a new city alongside of it called Tel Aviv, where we find the key international airport in Israel. 
So uh, note the old and the new here. Um, Joppa, Tel Aviv. I mean, they're really one. But uh, you got the old and the new. But something like that with Jericho back here. The old Jericho was steeped in history as found in the Old Testament, and it was largely in ruins at this point. The new Jericho, a mile away, had been built up by Herod. So if we were to put this on a map, uh, here we are, Old Testament Jericho, New Testament Jericho, and uh, Jerusalem about 15 miles away. But this could explain why one describes it one way and another describes it a different way. It's very possible that Jesus was leaving the ruins of the old city and entering the new, which would satisfy all accounts, which are merely reported from different perspectives. There are other possible explanations, uh, but this is the most common. Now, it should be remembered that the writers of the Gospels often telescoped events and selectively chose what they wanted to include because they were thematically making a point. In such a case, there's no contradiction. It's just that the writer doesn't fill in all the details. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Uh, what sometimes seems to be the case always has plausible explanations when examined more closely. Ed Glasscock says, It is to be remembered that the synoptics often present variety in reporting, offering augmentation, not contradiction. Amen to that. Well, Jesus was very popular at this point, although a very controversial figure because of the hostility of the Jewish religious leaders. And so a great multitude, not a small, but a great multitude was following him. However, the large crowd at this point is probably also accounted for by the fact that they were pilgrims making their way up to Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. Verse 30, in this context, related to Jericho, we find this scene. Verse 30, And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now the other two synoptic, which means similar gospels of Mark and Luke, present only one blind man. So here we have another issue. Was there two or was there one? Again, there's no contradiction because they don't say there was only one, but rather they focus on the one. And this is probably because the one was more prominent in terms of being the spokesman, more vocal, uh, the more vocal of the two. We're not told the, the why. Mark specifically names the more prominent one as being Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. This would suggest that perhaps Bartimaeus became well-known in the early church and was perhaps personally known by Mark. Well, some have underscored <clears throat> that Matthew, in writing to the Jews, brought out the fact of the two blind men because in Jewish culture, everything of great importance was established and confirmed by two or three witnesses. Well, when these two blind men found out what the commotion was all about, that Jesus was passing by, they began to cry out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. You see, to the crowd, this was Jesus of Nazareth, as seen in Luke 18.37. That's how they referred to him. Jesus of Nazareth, 
Nazareth is passing by. And they told the blind man this. But these blind men saw more than the crowd saw. Pun intended. They saw him as the Lord, the son of David, and they responded accordingly. The crowd wasn't crying out this at this point. Now, in the, they get stirred up in that way as we see the triumphal entry next time. But uh, the crowd is not saying this at this point. For them, he was just Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, notice it says here, they cried. Cried out denotes a loud cry of intensity. I mean, they were really letting it rip. This is the word used of the Canaanite woman who cried out for Jesus to heal her daughter in Matthew 15. It's a cry of desperation. It's the same word used in reference to the crowd crying out for Christ's crucifixion. A loud cry. This is the same word used of Jesus crying out from the cross with a loud voice. Matthew 27, 50. This was an impassioned cry. One of desperation. Jesus was passing by. This was their opportunity. Very possibly their only and last opportunity. And notice they cried out for mercy. Crying out for mercy is the position of humility. It recognizes, I'm not worthy, but asks for pity. Mercy extends compassion to those that are suffering. Mercy cares and seeks to relieve misery. Spirios Zodiites says this, the merciful are characterized by a caring attitude for those who are in misery. Well, they call on Jesus as Lord, as the son of David. Lord means master. Now, some say that the word Lord here in verses 30 and 31 is textually questionable. However, in verse 33, there is no debate that they referred to him as Lord. And also the cross reference in Luke 18, 41 is very clear. There in that cross reference, they came saying, what do you want me to do, Jesus asked. And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Now, it is true that sometimes Lord is used in the sense of a polite address prior to the resurrection of Christ. But here in this context, they are crying out for mercy. They are calling Jesus by his messianic title, Son of David, which shows that they recognized his lordship authority. While the crowd referred to Jesus as merely Jesus of Nazareth, these blind men called him the Son of David. Now, that is a power-packed messianic designation that is grounded in the Old Testament scriptures. You see, the Messiah would be one in charge of the kingdom, bringing about kingdom restoration. I mean, this is where you ultimately had to come pre-cross as far as your faith. Uh, this is where the thief on the cross came. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is the one who's in charge of the kingdom. Are you kidding me? He's on the cross. He doesn't look like he's in charge of the kingdom. Well, the, the thief had faith. And he believed that he ultimately would be. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, Matthew makes this messianic designation, son of David, the cornerstone of his gospel as seen in the very first verse of the book. Notice what we read there, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Emphasis on son of David here. Uh, 
Back in the Old Testament, God made special promises to David in what is called the Davidic covenant. Now, we might call this the royal covenant, right? We might call it the royal covenant. The Davidic covenant is the royal covenant. You see, God promised David a son that would succeed him as king and rule forever. This son would sit on David's throne forever and rule over an eternal kingdom. We read there in 2 Samuel 7, 16, Your house, speaking to David, God to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne, David's throne, shall be established forever. The right to rule comes through David. Thus, the son of David would be the Messiah. Sometimes the son of David is called the greater David. He is related physically to David as his heir, but at the same time is greater than David in that he is David's Lord and Lord over all. Note, uh, Paul begins his systematic presentation of the gospel in Romans 1.3 by saying this, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. As the root, Jesus is the creator of David. As the offspring, he is the descendant of David. How can this be? Well, it all makes sense when you understand he is fully God, he is fully man in one person. And as the Messiah, he has the right lineage. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's you know, traced back to the tribe of Judah. It all connects. As the son of David, he has the right to the Davidic throne. In Genesis 49.10, we have a very important prophecy. It reads this way. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between. Between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, the scepter is a symbol of royal power. Government and rulership belongs to the tribe of Judah. The royal dignity attained in Judah through David was made permanent by the Davidic covenant, which is to be fully realized in the kingship of Jesus Christ, who is the greater David. Now, from David on, the recognized leadership role on the throne over Israel belonged to Judah, and more specifically, to the line of David. Uh, only those of the line of David had a legitimate right to the throne. Now, think about this with me. After the fall of Judah, 586 B.C., a king has never been seated on the throne in Jerusalem. The next king to come was Jesus. He presented himself to Israel as her legitimate king, which is a the theme of Matthew. But they rejected him. Therefore, there will be no proper king sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The turning point is seen in the phrase, until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh is a messianic reference. And most scholars believe it means to whom it belongs. 
The scepter, the right to rule, belongs to the tribe of Judah through the line of David. And it will remain there until the one comes to whom it ultimately belongs, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, Ezekiel 21-27, overthrown, overthrown. Judah, Judah is to be overthrown. I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Remember, the throne belongs, uh, the scepter belongs to Judah. And when Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians, the throne was overthrown. And no one from Judah has sat on the throne ever since. But when Jesus was born, the angel said to Mary, prior to his birth, the angel announced, Luke chapter 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Oh my goodness! And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This one is going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, of the promises that God made to David. So Jesus is the special son of David, who will ultimately reign forever from David's throne. I mean, to call someone the son of David was a huge, huge thing. And that's what these blind men are doing. 17 verses in the New Testament either designate or describe Jesus as the son of David. This designation has royal messiahship with lordship authority written all over it. It is thoroughly grounded in the prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to be in charge of the government. Praise the Lord. Yes, praise the Lord. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God is going to make it happen. Now, it was common knowledge among the Jews that Messiah would be from the offspring of David. We see this in John chapter 7, verse 42. They're talking about who Jesus might be, and they're reasoning among themselves, saying, Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? Yeah, they got that right. You just need to be a little more careful in your research and note that this connects with Jesus Christ perfectly. Well, in calling Jesus Lord, who is the son of David, these blind beggars recognize Jesus as Lord, who is the long-awaited royal Messiah, who was to come and bring in the kingdom and sit on David's throne, which is exactly what the religious leaders and the people generally refuse to acknowledge. As such, these blind beggars were acknowledging Christ's kingdom authority. Verse 31. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. Be quiet. Go to the cry room or something. 
Be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. You see, the multitude had no regard or concern for these social outcasts. And they had no faith either that, that Jesus was the Son of David. They had no mercy. They saw these blind beggars as really an embarrassment. And society generally tended to see an ailment like blindness as the result of some personal sin. In John 9, the disciples asked Jesus about the man born blind, wanting to know if it was because of his sin or that of his parents. So the multitude was warning these two beggars that they should keep quiet. But the blind beggars cried out all the more at the top of their voices. And they would not be silenced. They didn't care what anyone thought. They wanted the attention of Jesus, the kingdom Messiah. What a picture here. The crowd wants to keep people from Jesus, people like this, and they don't care. But those truly looking to Jesus for his help will not be deterred or dissuaded. This reminds me of Luke 16, 16, where Jesus said the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. The truth of Christ calls for a resolute response. To enter in involves a personal application of forcefulness involving a determined commitment, which goes contrary to the crowd. Aligning with the truth of Jesus puts one against organized religion, certainly did in this context, against the organized religion of the day, which was not easy. On the one hand, you have the broad way. It's the easy way that leads to destruction. Many are on that path. Most, the majority. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there be that find it. Jesus said, narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Matthew 7, 14. To enter in involves resolute determination, which runs contrary to the crowd and is not for the faint of heart. It involves earnest sincerity that counts the cost. It does not happen through indifference or in a nonchalant manner. This is descriptive of a serious commitment that is sincere and resolute. I always think about Revelation at the end of the book, final things, but the cowardly. The cowardly. They're going to have their part in the lake of fire. Why? Because they were cowardly. They wouldn't stand up to the crowd. The cowardly. <laughs> well, that, that's, why, that's why I rejected you, Jesus. Uh, the crowd influenced me more than you. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns in fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Jesus said this, Luke 13, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive to enter. For many, many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter means to earnestly seek. And the point is, one better do it before the door of opportunity is shut. In sharing the gospel with people, I've often asked them, after I've shared the gospel fully with them, uh, now what do you want to do with the truth of Jesus? And a lot of times, you know, they just kind of say something like, I don't know, or uh, maybe. 
And that's always a clear signal to me that they're not serious. You see, a saving faith commitment is sincere. It wants in. And it is sure of it. It's intentional. Just like these blind beggars were intentional. They weren't saying, I'm not sure I'm interested in Jesus, but we'll consider it. They were all in. They were intense. And they pressed the issue in spite of the crowd. This is the stuff of genuine saving faith. The end of the book again, Revelation twenty two seventeen. last invitation in the Bible. Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And him who, let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. You got to want to. You got to want to. And of course, it only happens in conjunction with the work of God. Nobody on their own arrives at this point. But you got to want to and nobody can do it for you. Only those willing to act counter to the powerful influence of the crowd of the world can enter in. Everyone who does this is doing so because of a strong, resolute desire. Whoever desires, you got to want to. Saving faith is active and intentional. In the Gospel of John, the word believe is always a verb. True faith by its very nature is an active reality. C.S. Lewis rightly said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. How true that is. I think that is reflected in a saving faith that presses into the truth of Jesus in spite of the world, the flesh, and the devil that seek to keep the person from Christ. A saving faith is serious about Jesus and therefore a life-changing reality. Those that aren't serious aren't saved. It is noteworthy that earlier in Jesus' ministry, he never really personally used the designation son of David in reference to himself. In fact, in Matthew 9, 27 through 30, when he healed two other blind men on a different occasion earlier in his ministry... They also called him the son of David. And he commanded them to tell no one. Don't tell anybody. He didn't say, you're wrong about that. No, they were right. He said, don't tell anyone. And the reason Christ kept the lid on the son of David language was apparently because this messianic designation was very politically charged. The Jews largely thought of the son of David in terms of a political Messiah who would deliver them politically. Jesus wanted people to see him for his biblical character and biblical qualifications and not just as a political deliverer. Therefore, he functioned the way he did in letting his life and ministry speak for itself through the lens of the prophetic scriptures. But now, but now as the cross is on the horizon... He allows the truth of who he is as the son of David to come forth front and center before this great multitude. No longer is he saying, oh, don't tell anybody. It's fine. Tell everybody. And they're really going to let it rip on the, the way into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Earlier in the case of these two blind men, they were told to keep quiet. But now in reference to this great multitude... 
it is on full display and even in a greater way in the triumphal entry, which is to follow shortly. Verse 32. So Jesus stood and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? Uh, It's like the invalid. Uh, Do you want to be made well? I mean, what do you want me to do? Uh, Jesus did not deny the validity of summoning him as Lord and son of David. Rather, he in effect acknowledged the legitimacy of their lordship messianic designation by asking them what they wanted him to do for them. I mean, as Lord, as Messiah, the son of David, what what do you want me to do for you? Well, they, they kind of could have said, well, Jesus, we want you to do for us what nobody else can do, right? That's really what they're asking. And, but Jesus wants people to spell it out, to ask him specifically. You know, James says you have not because you ask. God wants us to ask. I think in asking, we, we are recognizing our dependence upon him, and we are recognizing his ability to do something about it. John Phillips says this, the Lord gave the blind men a chance to express their need. Often the overeager soul winner puts words into the mouth of the one he is bringing to Jesus. It would be far better to ask questions so that the lost one can express both need and faith in his own words. I think there's great wisdom in that. And I've come to that point in my ministry. I don't want to put words in people's mouth. Uh, I, I want that to be their own. I've been working with a guy for a year now. And, and if he ever gets saved, I, want to, I don't want to be one of Dwight's converts, right? I don't even want to be in the equation here. I want this to be a total God thing, which all conversions are, by the way. <laughs> it's like my, my friend, I had a missionary friend, Carol Wilson's her name, but uh, she got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. And uh, then she went to the crusade, what was in, in Omaha here. And Billy Graham was walking around the outside of the crowd and somebody pushed her out in front of Billy Graham. Knowing the whole, you know, she really would like to meet Billy Graham because, I mean, she got saved under his ministry. And she, she's staring around as Billy Graham was there and she says, I, I'm one of your converts and I'm a missionary now in, in France. And Graham said to her, well, that proves that you're just not one of my converts. You're his convert. Well, that's the ultimate issue. I have come to the place in my own ministry after sharing the gospel. I've learned to ask questions. Questions like these. What do you now believe about Jesus? As we have looked at the word of God, what do you now believe? I like to ask them about repentance without using the word repentance. Like this. Have you changed your mind? That's what repentance means, to change your mind. Have you changed your mind about being good enough to go to heaven? Because almost always, well, I think I'm good enough, you know. You think you're a good person? Well, yeah, you think you're good enough to get to heaven? Well, good a chance as anybody. I want them to have a total change of mind and say, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm a lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemer who has disobeyed my parents. <laughs> not in that order. I like to ask him, now what is your understanding of grace? You know, I'm preaching the gospel of grace. What is your understanding of grace? The last thing I want to do is close your eyes and repeat after me. I have done way too much of that earlier in my ministry. I don't do that. I mean, there's a place to pray after they have clearly confessed. I like to tell them after they have made their faith clear to say, well, why don't you tell Jesus what you just told me? I like to say to them, what would you like to say to Jesus? As John Phillips says, 
It's best if the person can articulate their own, in their own words, both their need and their own faith. We want them to own it and not just repeat words after us that they may not understand or mean. Then they said to him, they didn't say, Lord, Lord we're at a loss for words. We, we have no idea what we want. <laughs> no, no, they knew what they wanted. Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Note again, they addressed Jesus as Lord, believing that his lordship authority involved the power to heal their blindness. Healing the blind is virtually unheard of in the annals of history. The man born blind in John 9 said, quote, Since the world began, it has, not been, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one born blind. This is the stuff of kingdom restoration, which only the king can bring about. Arno Fruchtenbaum says, Sometime prior to the coming of Jesus, the ancient rabbis separated miracles into two categories. First, there were those miracles that anyone would be able to perform if they were empowered by the Spirit of God to do so. The second category of miracles were called messianic miracles, which were miracles only the Messiah would be able to perform. And refining it further, there were three miracles that the Jews believed that only the Messiah would be able to do. Number one, only the Messiah would be able to heal a Jewish leper. Number two, only the Messiah would be able to cast a demon out of a mute man. And number three, only the Messiah would be able to heal a man born blind. Well, whether born blind or not, healing a blind man was seen as a most unusual and unprecedented miracle. But healing the blind is one of the miracles prophesied in conjunction with the coming kingdom that the Messiah, the son of David, will usher in. It's all over the, the place in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 29, 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Kingdom context. Isaiah 35, 5, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, 7, To open the eyes of the blind. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Messianic context, very strongly, the first servant song in Isaiah 42. When John the Baptist began to question whether Jesus was really the Messiah, Jesus sent this message to John the Baptist. He says, go tell John this. Jesus answered and said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, first sight. First thing, the blind see. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. These were all messianic credentials in keeping with the Old Testament prophecies related to the coming king and his kingdom. These are miracles of the kingdom that only the coming messianic king, the son of David, would bring about in keeping with kingdom restoration. Hebrews 6.5 says of the early church that they tasted, that is, they sampled the power, the powers, the miraculous powers of the kingdom age to come. These blind beggars believed in Jesus as the coming Messiah, the son of David, who could perform kingdom miracles. 
Because in fact, he is Lord. Verse 34. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Often in Jesus' ministry, we see him moved with compassion. Compassion is an emotional word that literally means to be moved in one's bowels. You see, this is where the ancients considered the emotions and the feelings to reside. To be moved with compassion means to be moved with deep feelings of care and concern. Compassion cares and moves to help people because of deep empathy and sympathy. This, by the way, was the last public miracle that Jesus performed. And there was no long, drawn-out process. Immediately, upon Jesus' touch, they received their sight. Imagine the first sight in coming out of blindness is to see Jesus. Indescribable. I mean, that experience must have been just mind-blowing. These healed blind men, upon receiving their sight, followed Jesus which is indicative of true faith. Now, it is clear from the cross-reference in Mark 10, 52, that these two blind men had true faith because it says there that Jesus said to Bartimaeus, quote, your faith has made you well. Your faith. Well, what kind of faith do you have? Well, they dressed Jesus Lord, dressed him as the son of David. John Phillips says, 10,000 new sensations were being recorded in their brains. A new world had opened up before them. They saw themselves, but they followed Jesus. That is what happens when a person has a genuine encounter with God's beloved Son. What we have here is really, I think, an illustration of saving faith. These men, on the basis of faith, receive physical healing. But that is indicative of a deeper spiritual healing. Not only did these blind men receive physical sight, but they had come to have spiritual sight in faith that sees Jesus for who he is as Messiah Lord. Jesus said this in his ministry. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus spelled out the problem in John chapter 3. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. Here's the problem. Here's the basis of condemnation. Light has come into the world. The the light is there. And you're accountable for it. And here's the problem. Men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, men in their natural state love darkness rather than light. And because of this, they don't want to come to the light. They hate the light, which is Jesus. That is why they howl to high heaven when the light of God's truth shines upon them. They don't like it. But when people respond to the light of God's conviction, as seen in the light of the gospel, then God performs a supernatural creation miracle in which the person is born again. And this is totally a God thing. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, But if our gospel is veiled, that that is hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, 
lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Here's the problem. The God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of people in unbelief. But in salvation, people come to see the light of the truth of Jesus as Lord God. This is a supernatural thing in which God miraculously turns on the light in the heart of people. He goes on to say, Paul does, in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. You know that creation miracle, let there be light in Genesis 1? It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts a miracle of light. To give the light of the knowledge. What have we come to know? What have we come to see? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we see it? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ. In seeing the light, we have come to see the truth of Jesus for who he is as Lord God. In the face of Jesus, we have seen the glory of God. And that forever changes us. These blind men came to see the truth of Jesus as Messiah Lord. And that resulted both in physical and spiritual sight. When we come to see the gospel truth of Jesus as Lord and Savior, we too have spiritual sight. As the old song says, once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. All true believers have come to see this truth. The truth of Jesus for who he is as Lord and Savior. Well, a couple of takeaways by application from our passage today. Number one is Christ's example in serving. Jesus used this, his great power to heal others, not to save himself. He came to serve, not to be served. So you're a believer. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. So you're a believer and you want a great reward in the kingdom, which you should. I hope you do. That's good. But realize that the basis of kingdom rewards relates to humble service in the here and now. Christ's example of service is reaching out to the lowest of society that no one else cares about. It's about humble service that has compassion and shows mercy. This is indicative of kingdom service and of kingdom greatness. Serving in this way results in kingdom greatness. It's not about self-promotion, but rather about humble, lowly service. This is the example of Jesus and the way to great kingdom reward. Second, let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? It's a good question. Who is Jesus to you? Have you come to see the truth of who Jesus is as Lord and Savior? That's the ultimate issue for time and eternity. The crowd is meandering on their way to hell. But there are a few that respond to the truth of the gospel and come to see the truth? Are you one of them? This is the ultimate issues. You old-timers will remember Bill Waters. Uh, Bill Waters was my right-hand man for, for many years in the early days of the church. He and others started Southview Bible Church, which was Southview Baptist Church in those early days. Bill and I went through many, and I mean many, all caps here, many battles together. 
in the days, in the early days of the church, I mean, we had all kinds of stuff going. We had people on the board that I don't think today were probably not even saved. So we went through many battles in those early days of the church. And, and humanly speaking, if it wasn't for Bill and Shirley Waters, I'm convinced that there would be no Southview Bible Church today. Of course, it was all God, and all the glory goes to God. But he greatly used Bill Waters to that end. And Bill will always have a special place in my heart. Well, Bill's testimony was this. One night years ago, he was invited to hear the evangelist Billy Graham in Omaha. And that particular night, Billy was preaching on the passage from Mark chapter 10 about the blind Bartimaeus. And Bill said, and when he talked, when he shared his testimony with me, it was powerful. Bill, Bill said, it was just like I was there with blind Bartimaeus. And Jesus was passing by. Bill realized this was his opportunity. Jesus was passing by. And what would he do with Jesus? That night, Bill responded in faith and called on the name of the Lord in faith and was truly born again. Truly, his life was forever changed. Became a leader in the church. Well, today, Jesus is passing by. The truth of Jesus is before you. What will your response be? The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now. Now is the day of salvation. You know, the Bible never says later, tomorrow. There's an urgency. Now. Eternity's in the balance. James Kennedy shared this story. He says, I once talked to a young man about 22 who told me that he said that he believed in God and in Christ intellectually and believed that the Bible was true and someday planned to accept Christ as his Savior. But first he said, I've got a lot of living to do. I remonstrated with him for some time, but finally when I saw that I could not persuade him, I let him go reminding him that the Bible says that he who, being often reproved, hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. A week later, I heard that he was driving down the highway about 70 miles an hour when a truck stopped in front of him with a tailgate down. He was instantly decapitated. I remembered the words that I had spoken to him. He that hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. Jesus is passing by. This is your opportunity. Will you have another one? I don't know. I know the Bible says now. Now, now, now is the time. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is passing by, so to speak. Jesus is passing by. What is your response? That is the ultimate issue in time and for all eternity. Let's stand and have our closing song.